According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians this morning, Philippians chapter 1, dealing with verses 7 and 8, where we are learning how to get in touch with our feelings and um, on a biblical basis. We have thinking in verse 7 and feelings in verse 8. And there's a mistranslation in verse 7 that we've been trying to correct and uh, spending time so that we recognize what comes first. And uh, what do we have in the driver's seat? Is it our thinking or is it our feeling? And if our feelings are shaped by biblical thinking, then we have the biblical design. We have the best as God has designed it. But if our thinking is impacted by unbiblical feelings, and we're in trouble, all right? And so we want to make sure that, uh, that we have things in the proper order as the Scripture presents them, that our thinking comes first as it's shaped by the Word of God. So uh, verse 7 says, It is only right uh, for me to think this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. That is the core of my being. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers, fellow fellowshippers, in, uh, partakers of grace with me. And so the thinking in verse 7 is what shapes the emotions of verse 8. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The longing is, is an emotional term and the affection is an emotional term. And we need to learn what these emotions are and uh, what it means to have the splanchnon, to have the, the bowels, the tender mercies that are directed towards a person or a place or a thing, and the uh, circumstances related to emotions that are hurt. And how do you deal with the hurt emotions? Well, these verses are going to point us the right direction in uh, making sure that thinking is adjusted to a standard of righteousness, to make sure that thinking is grounded in grace. And if, if your thinking is according to the standard of righteousness and your thinking is grounded in grace, well then the emotions will follow. And uh, you'll make sure that those affections are properly directed. Alright? So that's where we are. Before we get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer asking the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and we uh, rejoice over the blessing that we have to assemble together this morning. We give you the praise and glory, Father, for your faithful provision that here we are on this day, at this time, in this place, uh, according to your plan, according to your will, and there is, uh, there is food to partake in, Father, spiritual food, eternal food, and you've crafted it from the foundation of the world for this moment. And I want to thank you for uh, your faithfulness in this regard. So humble us to receive it. Might we receive it as coming from you and not from man, as coming from you and your authority, Father. Humble us under your authority. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so uh, if you are following in our outline, then we are at point nine. And I've got to zip ahead here to the right slide that has point nine on it. Paul's thinking is righteous thinking, righteous thinking grounded in grace so that his feelings reflect the affection of Christ. And that's what we have here. Remember the term for right 
is, uh, is more than just the human expression of right and wrong or accurate or inaccurate, correct or incorrect. It is dikaios. It is right or just. It is according to the standard of God Himself. God's very nature as righteous. That He is the standard of anything that we would call righteousness. If we create a standard of righteousness apart from God's standard, it's not acceptable. It's a human standard of righteousness and it's, it's filthy rags in God's sight. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags and He wants nothing to do with it. And so our thinking has to be dikaios. And thankfully it is dikaios. In fact, it's part of the blessings that we have here that we have a righteous thinking, righteous judgment, and sound judgment that the New Testament speaks of. And this is the, our blessing here in time. That part of what happens is not only do we get saved, but then the Word of God starts to transform our thinking, starts to transform our being. So that because the Word of God is at work, we have righteous thinking, we have righteous judgment, where we can biblically discern between uh, that which is pleasing in God's side and that which is an abomination to Him. And uh, we should have our senses trained uh, to discern between good and evil. That's the, the nature of the Christian walk. And so among our greatest temporal blessings in Christ are righteous thinking, righteous judgment, and sound judgment. Um, again, if you still have the word feeling in uh, your Bible there in verse 7, I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation, where it says, it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, I think that's, that's inaccurate. That's not appropriate to render it that way. I think the translators were getting a little bit ahead of themselves because uh, of the emotional expressions in verse 8. No question. Verse 8 has a longing and verse 8 has an affection and those are clearly emotional terms. But getting ahead of themselves and using verse 8 to influence how they translate verse 7 I think gets it backwards. It puts the cart before the horse. And it fails to show the progression that Paul was intending here in these verses. Uh, Phreneo is a thinking term. And in all the times that phreneo is used throughout the New Testament, 26 usages of phreneo in the New Testament. And it is a thinking term without question. The frame is the mind. And phreneo is a thinking term. That means not only have you put comprehensive thought into something, but now you, you hold a mindset. You hold a view because you've thought it through. And now your mind on a matter, your thinking on a matter it has been fixed. All right? Have this thinking in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, okay? That's what we're going to get to in chapter 2. But from chapter 1 to 2 to 3 to 4, um, isn't that it? <laughs> okay? We, had, we don't have a chapter 5 in Philippians, so every chapter of Philippians is saturated with thinking, okay? Ten times in four chapters, Freneto shows up. And this really is the book on thinking as far as uh, we've been looking at it. So here's the first out of ten. It is only right for me to think this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Okay? There too we want to identify this as a thought process. We want to identify this as a conscious decision on Paul's part. He didn't have to put the Philippians there, but it's right for him to do so. And who do you put in your heart? And so this led us to an interesting study as well about storing things in your heart, hiding things in your heart, treasuring things in your, in your heart. And the New Testament speaks of these, all of these are idiomatic, uh, because we recognize that the heart is the, the innermost part of our being, that dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The cardia is the, is the core of who you are. And I think we're familiar with, the, the obvious one is, is Psalm 119, right? Thy word I have hid in my heart. 
that I might not sin against thee. We all know that. And, and I think we're all familiar with the idea of storing the Word of God in our heart. We want to memorize the Word of God. We want to learn the Word of God. We want to live in the Word of God so comprehensively that it, it dwells within us. Okay? And so we understand that, but with this passage and with some other passages, we start to see that doctrine is not the only thing we can, sh- we can shove in there. <laughs> okay? We can store the Word of God in our heart, but what else can we put in our hearts? See, people. People, which this passage is dealing with, and I think other passages as well. Um, also circumstances, events. We read in, in Luke, Mary treasured these things in her heart. Well, what does that mean? And they, these were the, the episodes, the events centered on when they took Jesus into the temple and there were prophecies uttered about him and uh, they had him circumcised on the, on the eighth day and, and she's, she's introduced to the prophet Simeon and the prophetess Anna and all these things are happening and Mary treasured these things in her heart. Or the next chapter when he's 12 years old at the temple and Mary treasured these things in her heart. So it's not only the Word of God that we can treasure in our heart, but circumstances, events, things that we go through in our life that shape who we are after that. Okay, And that's what we talk about when something is placed in your core, that, that that's where it is and it shapes who you are ever after. And it's true of the Word of God that we put there and it's true of the, of the events that God puts us through when those things then become... Um, a factor in, in developing who we are after that. And then, of course, people. Uh, as Paul says here, um, and there is a, a grammatical question that's legitimate with respect to, you could translate the same sentence, I have you in my heart or you have me in your heart. Okay, And that's uh, just a quirk of, of Greek ambiguity there that it can be taken either way and be acceptable uh, grammatically. I think contextually, though, it's all centered in Paul's attitude towards them that's shaping his prayer life. So I don't have any issue with I have you in my heart. But we recognize this is something that he himself did. It's there because he put them there. And that's the point. So who do we put in our hearts? Do we put everybody in our hearts? Who do we put? The Corinthians weren't in his heart, okay? But the Philippians were. And there's a reason for that. Okay? And and, and we want to be cautious on this. Because we'll get to a text in chapter 4 I think people ignore they, they like the prayer part, but they forget the part that says, and the peace of Christ which surpasseth all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And, and they, they love that as a promise because they want peace, right? But they fail to realize it's not just a promise that you will have peace, it's a promise that that peace will guard your heart and your mind. Okay? And so that becomes a significant aspect. Why, do, why does my heart need to be guarded? Well, Scripture tells us why, <laughs> okay? Because if we're not careful, our heart will, will be poisoned. If we're not careful, we're going to put the wrong thing in there. And, and, and uh, there's, there's a lot of applications with respect to this, so stay tuned. I, I really think that uh, we're going to ha- do some cardia-type studies coming up on a topical basis so that we're clear that uh, the difference between the unbeliever's heart and the believer's heart is, uh, is huge. God's creating in us that clean heart, and He's shaping it. He's shaping it by the Word of God. We want to be clear on that. So um, placing the Word of God in your heart, placing fellow believers in your heart, placing ministry experiences in your heart, all right? All of these things can be placed within the core of our being, all right? 
that itself becomes an act of humility and blessing. It is an act of humility and blessing. And so this uh, too, and of all these verses, I think we've we've looked at them already, but the one I want to review here is is James 1.21, because it's the one that really stresses the necessity of humility. Without humility, none of this is going to happen. James 1.21. Hebrews, James, here we go. It says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. This talks about the outworking of our faith, the Christian walk, as we would describe it. All right. The fact that we are saved and that we have a new walk in Christ and um, and what it is that's expected of us now in the uh, in this new walk. So it says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, or with humility, by humility, dative of means, dative of instrument, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Okay? Able. And when we talk about the potentiality of these things, we recognize that we can hinder all of that from ever happening. We can reject the word of God that's being taught and not receive it. Or if we don't have the humble attitude, then how does that affect our ability to truly learn the Word of God? If we're sitting here thinking that, well, I don't need that, or well, I don't need that, or well, I'm... See, that's what we're dealing with with Proverbs. The fool, you can't tell the fool anything because he knows it all already. The way that seems right in his own eyes. And even if seven people with discernment show up, he's not going to listen to that. He knows what he's doing. So it's with humility that we receive the Word implanted. And this then becomes the key. I think we can take this text, combine that with the parable of the sower. Do you want the seed implanted or not? Do you want it firmly implanted? Do you want the rocks cleared away? Do you want the thorns cleared away? Do you want the good depth of soil so that the Word of God will be implanted and, as Colossians says, dwell richly within you? Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. For that to happen, according to this passage, it requires humility. Absolutely setting yourself aside and saying, Father, I, I need truth. Okay? As you know, I'm I'm a dummy. I need truth. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, so your ways higher than my ways, your thoughts higher than my thoughts. So here I am, Father. Teach me what I need. Put that in my soul. I don't just want to learn information. I don't just want facts rattling around my empty head. I want truth to the core of my being. And and here we have it in James 1, 21. So uh, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And the ability of it is there, but you have to make use of what you're receiving. If you reject the word of God, is it going to save your soul? If you ignore the word of God, is it going to save your soul? Okay. We're talking about saving in the experiential sense, right? We're talking about um, the, the sin temptations, we're talking about the uh, daily walk of, of experiential sanctification. We're not talking about believing in Jesus Christ and receiving eternal life here. Okay, I want to be clear on that. But we're talking about the saving of your soul on an experiential basis, day by day, when, when this sin temptation comes, or that sin temptation comes, or here's this snare, and you're looking at it, okay? You can make use of the Word of God that's implanted already in your soul and, and say, no, that's not, that's not the will of God. The Word of God will save you if you use it, if you listen to it. So we can appreciate that as well. All right. It goes on to say then in verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. 
And that, uh, that too becomes, I think, an expression of the arrogance there, that if you're not humble to receive it implanted, then that pride leads you to just simply learn it for the sake of knowing it. And uh, you know, if you're a hearer only and not a doer, that's uh, it's not going to work. It's not going to save your soul. And uh, if you think about it, I think back to you know your last five sins or your last ten sins or whatever, and uh, I, I don't think there's a one of them that was done uh, without knowing it was a sin. I knew it was a sin, and I did it. Okay, it's not that I was ignorant of the fact that it was a sin. I knew what it was. I did it anyway. Okay. Because the Word of God won't, deli- won't deliver you if you're not using it in, uh, in that way. So uh, we have that. So this is what we're dealing with when we're talking about the Word of God shaping our thinking. And our thinking is righteous thinking. Our thinking is grounded in grace. As we see here, we have the dikaios principle in verse 7 and we have charis in verse 7. Righteous thinking grounded in grace. This then leads to our feelings. This then uh, center, uh, shapes our affections. So because of Paul's righteous thinking, he developed an affectionate longing for the Philippian saints. And so because of verse 7, we're now equipped to handle verse 8. And we can recognize the emotions in verse 8 for what they are. And uh, we can appreciate the emotions in verse 8 for what they are. Uh, that God has designed Christianity to provide for us in our totality. And we are physical beings, we are intellectual beings, we are emotional beings. And uh, in any form of biblical Christianity that drops the ball in one of those areas, I think, is, is flawed. Okay? Um, and, 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 and I freely confess that in my upbringing, my childhood was, was definitely on the intellectual side of stuff to the point that the emotional side was, was um, not only diminished, but, but stamped out, okay? That, it, I, that, there was, that legitimate expressions of emotions were, were viewed critically. That, well, you're just an emotional revolt of the soul and you need, you need doctrine and get stable and, and, a, and a strong believer wouldn't, wouldn't have that, uh, that, uh, those emotions, okay? And, and I believe that was a flaw. In, uh, in my childhood and my uh, youth pastor. He's, of course, he's with heaven now, so he's in heaven now, so he knows better. But I'm thankful when I first started attending Austin Bible Church, I got introduced to Ralph Braun, and, and guess what? He was teaching Philippians, okay? And uh, oh, guess what? Uh, feelings are biblical. Feelings are human. Feelings are what we're designed with. God himself has feelings. Jesus had feelings. Jesus expressed those feelings again and again and again and again. You're trying to tell me that Jesus was an emotional revolt of the soul? That Jesus was some kind of a weak sister? That, she, that Jesus had a carnality issue? He needed to get doctrine and grow up? Okay? And so I was thankful for that. I was thankful to see a, um, a balance, if you will, uh, to, uh, to remedy and correct what, what I thought was an imbalance uh, from, from my youth. And, uh, and so I appreciate that. And, and very much so, to illustrate this other point, with respect to putting a person in your heart, there's no question for me, Ralph Braun is, is in my heart. And he will always be in my heart. And that's, uh, that's by virtue of what he has accomplished and what he did in serving the Lord and training me and, and uh, for Sharon and I and our young marriage and, and all these things. Okay, Part of the tough thing of going over and speaking in, 
in Ted's uh, service that's going to be in the same chapel in the same church where Sharon and I got married. <laughs> so, you know, I got to stand there looking at the aisle that Ted walked Sharon down that aisle, okay, back in the day. Well, it is what it is. Uh, but when you, you put Ralph in your heart, okay, and, uh, and, and so there it is. And I think it's the same thing. We, we discussed this yesterday, and six of us pastors got together in Schulenburg, Texas yesterday at a top secret location. But I can tell you now because it's over. But we, um, so we met, right, from Corpus to Houston to Austin to everywhere. And, um, and we met there in Schulenburg. But this, this whole thing that we're dealing with now in Philippians 1 was a, a big part of our discussion there in, at, at the table and uh, with a recognition that uh, just as Ralph is in my heart, there too is Pastor Cliff and Pastor Dan, that, that they were a part of Austin Bible Church, they were a part of our ministry here, and God used this flock to shape who they are today and, uh, and, and what they're doing today and where they're going and, and everything the Lord's going to do with them, okay? And you guys are a part of that, I'm a part of that, we're all a part of that because God used that to shape who they are now. And that's uh, what we talk about. So is there longing? Of course there's longing. There's longing, as it says there, with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And so a longing is, is an emotional um, feeling that we experience when we're not in proximity to people we want to be in proximity with. Okay, We're no longer with them. But every time we get a chance to, we, we want to. Okay? And so we have those reunions and we have those gatherings and we have the opportunity. Paul doesn't know if he's going to be, if he's going to live or die. He doesn't know if he's going to get out of jail or not. And, uh, and when he does, he wants to go straight to Philippi. It's the first place he wants to go. The first people he wants to see are these Philippian believers because he's longing for them. And uh, so that longing is appropriate. Okay? It's even translated lust. In, in uh, longing for the pure milk of the Word of God and you know, as newborn babe. Different things there. And then the affection. So we'll talk about both these terms. But first of all, he says, God is my witness. Why is that? Because it's a heart issue. And only God can look upon the heart. Okay? And so having placed the Philippians in his heart, Paul calls God to bear witness. Remember, God is the only one who searches the heart. And they are there, they're in his core, and God himself can testify to that. And Paul calls God to testify to that. And uh, in fact, what better way to testify than to have God the Holy Spirit inspired in the canon of Scripture? (laughs) Okay, So it shows up on paper as the God-breathed inspired Word of God that, that they are in his heart. So having placed the Philippians in his heart, Paul calls, that's verse 7, Paul calls God to bear witness. Verse 8, as the only one who searches the heart. And these verses here should be, uh, I don't have to spend a ton of time on them because it should be review for each one of us. I don't think anyone would, would dispute this. Um, if you want, I suppose we could debate it. Or I could take questions Wednesday night. But uh, God searches the heart. And it's another reason why it must be guarded. It's one of the great defenses we have. Satan can't read your heart. He can read your body language and he can uh, observe and, and he can have minions following you around and learning stuff based on what you do and what you say. But um, as far as reading your heart, that's not his realm. Only God looks upon the heart and, and he uses those passages sometimes to taunt the fallen angels. Those that would call themselves gods, they're not God. 
They can't tell the end from the beginning and they can't look upon your heart. We can rejoice in that. But 1 Samuel 16, 7, Psalm 139, verse 23, Proverbs 17, 3, Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The, uh, all of these uh, make reference to the fact that God searches the heart. And there's more, that's just a sampling. Um, so God is my witness, how I long for you. Not just the fact that He does, but the manner in which He does. The how. Not I call God as my witness that I long for you all, but how. I long for you all. The degree and the manner and the motivation and all of the, everything that goes into a how explanation. So God testifies not only to the reality of Paul's affectionate longing, but to the manner of Paul's affectionate longing. You know, and we all, we all know why this is important, okay? Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes there's people that, uh, yeah, they, they, they long for you all right, but why? <laughs> okay. What do you want? Yeah, you know, they, and, and there's, there's people out there I know because they keep calling me every night, telemarketers, okay? And they, they're, evidently they're longing for me because they call me all the time. They call me more often than most of my church people call me. But I know it's because they want something from me, okay? And you can desire a person, but for all the wrong reasons. And you can desire a romantic relationship, but for all the wrong reasons. And you can desire all kinds of things for all the wrong reasons. And so Paul is calling God to witness not only to the longing, but to the how of the longing. To the, to the uh, degree, the extent, the motivation, and everything that goes into the how, the manner of Paul's affectionate longing. Why it is that he has that affectionate longing. As described here, that uh, both in uh, my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel... You are all partakers of grace with me. Corinth didn't qualify. Corinth was not a, a grace partaker. <laughs> okay, uh, He didn't have a longing for them. He had a, a warning for them that said, uh, I'm about to come and look out. And uh, how do you want me to get there? Can I get there with judgment or can I get there with, with gentleness? And uh, that was a totally different uh, situation. So anyway, we, let's take a look at these. We won't spend a ton of time on them, but 1 Samuel 16, 7. I tried to select the ones that were best known to uh, most of us anyway. 1 Samuel 16, 7. And it's curious to me how in this chapter, the old man, prophet, you would think Samuel would know better. You would think, here's Samuel the prophet. He's, he's not a rookie in the ministry. And you think he would know better, but he's sent to Bethlehem and he's, he's going to anoint the king to replace King Saul. And so he goes to the house of Jesse and as soon as that firstborn son comes in, and, and we get that, you know, firstborn sons are always the smartest and handsomest and best. And I get that. Something Ted and I had in common. I love the fact that Ted was the firstborn of four siblings. And um, Anyway. Uh, so here's uh, in 16.7, verse 6 says, when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, wow, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Man, there's the next king of Israel right there. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it's a fundamental doctrine and it's one that uh, honestly Samuel and I'm sure he probably knew it, but maybe for the moment he just, you know, wasn't, wasn't cycling doctrine, wasn't thinking it through, just 
man, saw the handsome guy and said, wow, cool, that's our new king. No, that's not him. And uh, neither was it the next guy or the next guy or the next guy. And it's, it's interesting watching these, these sons come in, Aminadab, Sam, uh, Shammah, and it says in verse 10, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And uh, Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Okay, So what do you do when you run out of options? <laughs> well, yeah, what do you do? And uh, Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? You know, are we really done? Is this all we got? You know, and 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 in that, there's a whole sermon on that too. In there, you know, we we think we've we've exhausted everything that we thought we could do, and God says, no, there's one more, and you you rejected it, but this is the one I've I've selected. And so uh, Jesse said, well, there remains yet the youngest. Behold, he's tending the sheep. He's kind of the runt of the litter anyway, and I didn't think to bring him in here. You know. Not important enough to introduce to the, the visiting prophet in town. And uh, Samuel says, oh no, go get him. Okay? Send these older boys out there to watch the sheep. Get, get David in here. That's the, the issue. So Samuel said, uh, bring him in and we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in and, and here he is. So this is the one. It's not as God sees. It's not as man sees. God looks at the heart. And uh, yeah, he's the, the red-headed not, not a stepchild, he's a full child, but he's a red-headed runt of the litter, ruddy and beautiful eyes, handsome in appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. So that's the principle. God looks at the heart. Don't look at the externals. Quit looking at the externals. Uh, we also have Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And uh, verse 23, and this is, uh, what a fun text is this one, because um, there's so much doctrine in this psalm too. It's a Davidic psalm, uh, it talks about forming the inward parts, being woven in the womb, and, and um, how our days are numbered before there's even one of them and living in the Word of God, and occupied with, uh, with all these things. And then there's the wicked. There's the wicked in verses 19 through 22, and David wants no part of those guys. He says, um, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, depart from me therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? This is the uh, part of the, the doctrine of sanctified hate. This is the the aspect, it's not unrighteous. It's like righteous indignation. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Why? Because they're the Lord's enemies. And then he goes on to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So here's the God that searches the hearts and the minds. Here's the God that can evaluate David's hate and validate that it is love for God that's motivating this hate for God's enemies. So there is a realm of doctrine, <laughs> okay? But it's a realm of doctrine that, that directly testifies to the fact that God's the one that searches the heart. So he is suited to bear witness to Paul's testimony that when he searches Paul's heart, he's going to find the Philippians are right there. Proverbs 
Proverbs 17. Better, verse 1 says, Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance among brothers. The refining pot is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. And uh, not only does that speak to the reality of it, but it also speaks to the method. <laughs> the manner, when God's examining your heart, it's like a furnace. It's like putting silver through the fire. When God examines your heart, there's a purification that happens there when the dross gets uh, burned away. And then very famously, Jeremiah 17. And uh, without the new heart that we get in Christ, this is all we're left with is the old heart as unbelievers. But Jeremiah 17, thankfully there's a new core to our being in Christ as believers. Otherwise the core to our being in Adam is, uh, is a nasty thing. Um, Jeremiah 17 verses 9 and 10. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Notice how the heart is connected to the mind. The heart is connected to the thinking, to the intellect. It's not the emotions. When uh, the, we read in Hebrews that the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, not the, not the touchy-feelies, not the feelings and the emotions, okay? The thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The heart is the core of who you are, and ultimately in the image of God, you and I are rational beings. That's because we're rational, <laughs> okay? Don't always act rationally, but we're designed to be rational, not animal, not irrational, rational. And that's why the, the impact of the heart is always centered in thinking, not feeling. Feeling is an expression of how we're thinking in our core, if that makes sense. I hope it makes sense. And we'll have uh, more to say on that. So um, he's put them in his heart and he's going to call God to witness. God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so longing, here's our longing. The Greek word for longing is a compound, and it's an intensive compound. It's a word for thirsting, but it's a word for intense thirsting or intense desire. Uh, epi is the compound. Epipatheo is our term. Strong's Numbers 1971, there are six New Testament uses, and we'll see them. Also some remarkable Septuagint uses, uh, usages as well. In the Old Testament, when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, epipatheo had a central role in some passages we're very familiar with as the deer pants for the water brook. Okay, That's uh, Psalm 42. And so we should be panting for the Word of God. We should be panting for the Lord. We should be panting for uh, appropriate objects of our panting. Okay, um, And Paul says here that includes the Philippians. He longs for them. Okay, And so this speaks of that intense desire. Epi is an intensifier, and uh, that's what we have here. So yeah, Psalm 42, 1, Psalm 84, 2, Psalm 119, three times, three times the psalmist in Psalm 119 uses this verb. 
And if there's ever a character in the Old Testament that has a, has a passion, has a love affair for the Word of God, it's the psalmist in Psalm 119. And you'll notice his usage here of epipatheo, okay? His usage of this longing concept, okay? Well, he's writing in Hebrew, but this is the, the, the Greek word that translates his, uh, his Hebrew text. So to long for, to yearn, to desire, it's not wrong to have those desires. I think sometimes, um, wrongfully so, we can preach against certain desires uh, and, and, and that misses the mark. The desire itself is not wrong. If it's just misdirected, that's what makes it wrong, okay? Uh, whether For anything, food, alcohol, sex, all these things are legitimate desires, but they have to be appropriately placed where they belong, see? <laughs> and if you are maladjusted, well then yes, that's the, uh, that's the inordinate desire, that's the lust that has to be dealt with biblically. But otherwise, if it's directed towards the right object, well then, man, lust all you want, okay? You can lust all day, every day for the right object when God has designed it for your lust, for your epipatheo, okay? And your epithumia and your cognate forms here, synonymous forms for lust. All right. Uh, Psalm 42, I've already quoted it a couple times. Uh, This is the deer for the water brook. Um, Again, we'll see it's Davidic. We'll see um, context surrounding it. Psalm 42. All right. Oh, it's not Davidic. A masculine of the sons of Korah. I spoke incorrectly. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And you can think this through too and consider this as the to live as Christ, to die as gain principle. This is, you know, all day long we're, we're thirsting after His truth, but a day is coming when we're going to be face to face. When shall I come and appear before God? So until that happens... Well, we're going to continue uh, thirsting. We're going to continue feasting on the truth of His Word. So we can appreciate that. All right? Uh, Psalm 84 in verse 2. Psalm 84 in verse 2. Another Psalm of the sons of Korah here. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Yes, we're living here on this earth, but we're looking forward to being with our Savior. The bird has also found a house, the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Where do we belong? Okay. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King, and my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Okay? To dwell in the shelter of the Most High, to dwell in the, the presence of the Lord. This is what we're all looking forward to. And believers have always looked forward to being absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And uh, the principles that are here, Jesus told his disciples, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Okay? Then he said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Because the church, the bride, does not yet have a place uh, prepared for them until Christ does so. It's curious also to me in the uh, sense in the, in these psalms, particularly when Solomon hasn't built his temple yet. 
So in the Davidic Psalms, when David talks about God's temple, or talks about God's court, or talks about God's presence, because clearly these, uh, these reflect a heavenly reality when uh, on earth uh, the tabernacle's in tatters and Solomon hasn't built the temple yet. It uh, becomes a remarkable testimony to the perspective Old Testament believers had for the heavenly dimension as opposed to the earthly dimension. Okay, And uh, that's clearly presented throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 119, here's the psalmist here. Often credited to be David, I've taught it as not David, but uh, in the era of the captivity, contemporaneous with Jeremiah and Daniel and and the Babylonian captivity. But Psalm 119, and three times in this psalm we have uh, the longing and the desire. And uh, I think a a central feature for this uh, believer in his dedication to truth. Verse 20 says, My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. Do Do we truly, is that how we hunger for doctrine? Are we crushed when we can't get it? Does it break our heart or do we have more of the take it or leave it approach? Oh well, you know, yeah okay I missed it but you know there's always next week. Okay? Or do we have the sense that this day, this day the the saints have been called to assemble and Jesus Christ is in our midst and the word of God is going forth and he's feeding me on this day. And is that something that I'm so longing for that to miss it, to not be able to redeem that opportunity is becomes crushing. I think the term here of crushing is, uh, is uh, well, there it is. My soul is crushed with longing. And, uh, and, and that's what we ought to be. We should be lusting for the Word of God on that basis as newborn babes longing for the pure milk of the Word of God. And uh, the psalmist here reflects that. The, uh, the, the whole take it or leave it approach to me bespeaks of a um, not, not necessarily a hardness of heart but what the scripture would describe as a slowness of heart slow of hearing that uh, is on the road to that hardness of heart in, uh, in so many ways verse 131 in the same psalm get down to the pay strophe all these verses starting with the letter pay. And uh, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Well, you know, why, why does he open his mouth so wide? Well, you can get more that way. <laughs> okay? The wider you, you yawn, or the wider you, you can get your mouth, and you know, just imagine you're just trying to scarf up as much as you can. My dad used to tease me when I was, he'd catch me yawning and said, you know, accuse me of trying to catch flies. He'd say, you're going to catch a lot of flies that way. Oh, sorry, you know, just got to cover your mouth when you yawn. But here's the, uh, here's, uh, the psalmist saying he wants his mouth as wide open as he can get. He wants to pant and, and uh, take in as much doctrine. What, a, what an image. Okay, I like it. And so uh, he describes it this way. Uh, I opened my mouth wide and panted for I longed for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. 
saying, what a blessing we have to be able to take in the Word of God with fellow believers that, that love the Word of God, have the same appetite for the Word of God. All right. And then same uh, towards the end here, verse 174. More longing. I long for your salvation, O Lord. What, what kind of salvation do you think I was talking about? I mean, clearly this guy's a believer, okay? It's not an unbeliever writing all these verses, okay? He's born again, he's regenerate, he's already saved positionally, eternally, but we have that ongoing salvation when the Word of God is able to save your soul, when the Word of God delivers you from either a sin snare or possibly also, if this is a captivity psalm, the, uh, the deliverance in his captivity being hauled away to Babylon, all right? I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you and let your ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. If this is the death march, it may be that final day when he's one day out from Babylon. This was written over 22 days on the march to Babylon. If if that's legend is true then this is this final strophe was written on that last day and he's he's about to arrive at babylon where he's going to have his his life uh, as an exile and maybe for a moment he allowed himself to drift he allowed himself to just kind of despair he says i've gone astray like a lost sheep he wants to get his mind back where it needs to be seek your servant for i do not forget your commandments Anyway, so those Septuagint uses, those Septuagint uh, instances of, of epipatheo, uh, I think they paint a great backdrop then for the handful of uses that we have in the New Testament. And there aren't that many. There's nine in the New Testament. And, and you'll know two of them are here in Philippians, uh, 1.8 and 2.26. And then uh, most of them are Pauline. There is a James use and a First Peter use. Um, but we start with Romans. What does Paul say in Romans 1.11? Think, ooh, Romans 1, that's not a good thing. <laughs> when I think Romans 1, what do I think? Yeah, there's a whole lot of, whole lot of Gentile sin in Romans 1. But, um, anyway, before we get to that list of sins, Paul says, um, he says, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. So here's a longing. It's different from his Philippian longing. The Philippian longing, he longed to see them because he missed them, that he loved them, that he's been with them, that they've served, they've ministered, that they were in his heart. In the Romans longing, it's almost the direct opposite. He'd never met them. He'd never been to Rome. They hadn't served together. They hadn't fought battles together. They had, they weren't, uh, they had never fellowshipped in, in the gospel or the, the, the angelic conflict or anything. But because on that basis then, he says, I can't wait to get there. See? So it's, the same, it's longing still, but it's longing in a, different, in a different motivation with a different background for different reasons. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. They were, a, they were a lampstand that had not been, been fixed, had not been grounded, had not been established. See, by the way, that verse right there proves Peter didn't found the church in Rome. 
Because <laughs> they were still waiting for an apostle to come and plant them as a lampstand. And had you know the Catholic traditions been true, then they would have been planted by Peter, the first pope and whatever. Uh, no, this verse disproves all that, of course. They were not yet fixed, and Paul couldn't wait to get there so that he could establish them, could ground them. All right, 2 Corinthians 5. Good funeral passage. We don't want to be um, unclothed, but clothed. And uh, if this tent is torn down, we have a, a body in heaven waiting for us. We know that if the earth, earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Indeed, in this house we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. You ever think of it that way? The aches and pains of advancing years? I won't call it old age because, I don't know, it's curious to me though. I observe and I watch and I listen and, it's, and, and many of us, I'll, speak, I'll include myself, many of us have some interesting sound effects when we sit down. Or when we stand up, there's a little bit of a, uh, okay, either when we're sitting or when we're standing. And that's the, that's the groan, the groaning. And yes, it happens. And uh, we do groan. And the longer, because this outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. And so can you imagine the body's getting older and older and older and older and our spirit, our soul spirit is getting Stronger and stronger and stronger and more beautiful, more beautiful. It's, it's just it's an amazing thing. And so as that divergence widens, okay, you can imagine, um, yeah, you're ready for that, for that new body, ready for that glory. And that's what he's describing here. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. And uh, the idea that our soul, spirit would be taken from our body and not clothed in something, um, you know, we'd just be floating around as disembodied souls waiting for the rapture, waiting for the trumpet to finally go get our resurrection body. That's unthinkable. So we have what is often taught here as an interim body, a, a, a body that we get to be dressed with in the meantime so that we're not found naked. All right, indeed, while we were in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And that's the description there. All right. Still in 2 Corinthians, chapter 9 has a longing. And uh, curious, um, this is prayer on your behalf. This is with respect to Jerusalem believers that are going to receive the funds that will eventually show up the funds that will eventually arrive. And um, this portion of the Bible, much of it is centered on a, uh, a, a financial ministry that is being prepared and why they are invited to be partakers. The, the Macedonian church has got it all started. There's, there's a significant amount of, of money that's, that's being sent to Jerusalem. And now Corinth has a chance to, to, to jump in and, and contribute. But they want to do so biblically, Okay. And um, 
as it says here, uh, you have to uh, do as you purpose in your heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. You've got to give for the right reasons. Uh, if you give for the wrong reasons, God doesn't want it. We don't want it. But verse 10 says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. See, you don't suffer when you're giving for the right reasons. God is able to make all grace abound to you. That's verse 8. And uh, you never suffer when you're giving under right biblical principles. Anyway, so it goes on. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For, my, for this ministry, or the ministry of this service, is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, that's almost a, a no-brainer. I mean, that's almost like, well, okay, yeah. Yeah, we're sending money to believers, but that's beside the point. <laughs> okay? What else is it doing? Not only is it fully supplying the needs of the saints, okay, it's paying some bills, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. So Philippi gets to offer thanksgiving. Thessalonica gets to offer thanksgiving. Berea gets to offer thanksgiving. And these Macedonian churches are already giving thanksgiving for the pleasure and joy of contributing to the needs of the saints. And now Corinth is being invited to jump on board as well through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they, who's the they there? The, the, the recipients here that are receiving this, will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ, for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. And so this is the response of the Jerusalem believers when they finally receive the money. Not only are they receiving money, they're thankful for that, but they're thankful that there are believers in Corinth, believers in Macedonia, believers in all these places that are serving the Lord in this way. And then while they also, by prayer on your behalf. Now what can they return for the money that they're receiving? Prayer. Okay? Prayer on their behalf. That is such a fervent prayer, it's described as a lust. It's described as a yearning. While they pray by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. How many prayers have we offered in thanks for the, uh, the gift that arrived, the anonymous gift that paid for this building? And, and it's just yearning on their behalf, okay? Being able to pray on their behalf, thanking God for their obedience to the Word of God, thanking God for all that He does as prayers get multiplied. And, uh, and so they pray on your behalf. And so, you know, isn't it a good thing to have more people praying for you? Don't you, don't you think it's a good thing? Don't I want all kinds of flocks praying? Of course. That's why I like the, the lunches, that we, like the one we did yesterday. That's why I like having the Poimenike prayer meetings, having a list of pastors and churches. That's why I like knowing when things are happening. Finding out that, um, did you see the email on, on uh, Play Roma Bible Church? Tullahoma, Tennessee? All right. Clay, if you didn't, I'll tell you. Um, Clay Ward was the pastor there, still is, <laughs> but um, from 2001, 2001, and that had been a bracket church hookup. It had been a, a taper group, okay? And they decided when the colonel died, they said, you know what, we want to have a real pastor, we want to have a real church. Clay took that group, became their pastor. They've been there since 2001 in Tullahoma, Tennessee. 
and they've, they've bounced from rented place to rented place and storefront and here and there. And, uh, and then, then in this year, just two weeks ago, two weeks ago they moved into their new building. And, um, and God in His grace provided it. They paid cash. They're, here they are. They have a conference. They celebrate their new building. And it burned down on Wednesday. Okay? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's amazing. See, um, someone had ripped off their uh, electrical box. They, they took the meter out and stole the electrical meter. And so the police came and investigated and whatever. And, and then the electric company shows up and they put the new box in. And what happens? They put the new meter in and poof, sparks the, uh, the thing and the whole thing goes up. Okay? Well, there's a flock we can be praying for. And we better be praying for. Say, thankfully, the church is not the building. The church is the people, and the building is where they meet, and we get that. But this morning, Pastor Clay is shepherding his, his flock in the aftermath of uh, in the aftermath of that. Okay. All right. Another pastor friend of mine is resigning his pulpit today. We're praying for that. That's a tough Sunday to to give your final message and then announce your departure. Okay? We're praying for that. Well, uh, we'll pick up here on Wednesday, Lord willing and rapture pending. Um, we'll have the appropriate longing, longing for one another, longing for the truth, longing for the appropriate objects of our longing. Um, different, uh, different applications there. Let's, uh, let's give this to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the blessings we have to pray for one another, the examples we have in the New Testament the uh, cooperation we see in ministry between uh, Philippi and Thessalonica and, and inviting uh, Corinth to, to, to jump in. But um, Corinth was so schismatic and divided, they weren't, they weren't ready for the longest time. Father, until, until they had repented, they, they were not able to, to uh, engage on a grace basis. And I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for those patterns that we learn how we can serve you and how we can cooperate with other churches, how we can, uh, and we're not forming denominations, Father, but we are um, cooperating with other churches and missionary support and other things. And we do so, Father, on a grace basis, and we do so with like-mindedness, and we do so in the will of God in, uh, in all these things. And beyond all the earthly things and the money and the finances, Father, comes our prayers. And I do pray for Pastor Clay Ward and his wife Amy and all their children and the congregation there in, in Tullahoma, Tennessee. And I pray that the message today, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be something they'll never forget. This event, Father, will, will be implanted in the core of their being. Um, they'll never forget the Sunday they met with their, uh, their building burned down. And um, I thank you for, uh, for Pastor Clay and his faithfulness. Keep him steady. Keep him uh, faithful before you so that he can lead his flock. Uh, during this time. And I pray for uh, other pastors, other churches, things going on, Father. You know where they are and what they're doing and why they're doing it, Father. And I believe they're in your will, and I thank you for that. And uh, you open doors and you close doors. And uh, uh, sometimes we get sad over the closed door, but it's it's still you being faithful, Father. And, uh, and I pray for that as well. So uh, be at work beyond all we could ask or think. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.